everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back. We figured we would uh, continue the conversation we started with uh, our last lightning rounds where we chatted about presenting at medical conferences, you know, going out into the world, talking to people about whatever, most often something uh, educational, although we talked about some other options. The other uh, kind of category in this realm of academic medical activities we do for sort of nebulous reasons is publishing. Uh, And mostly I would say publishing in journals, although you know, publishing textbooks is probably a, a similar category, and then there's all this novel media like blogging and things. Um, but let's let's look at journal articles today. And you know, there's a, I think a lot of overlap with what we talked about last time, um, particularly with the obvious place to start, which just like presenting, is the question of why do it at all, and. It's a, it's a fair question. You know, like presenting, this can be a, a lot of work. You don't have to go somewhere. But the amount of effort that goes into writing even a modest article for publication is, is quite a lot, especially if there's some, some real um, research you have to do. So, you know, why would anyone publish something in the literature? And, uh, you know, mostly we're talking about peer-reviewed medical journals here. There's kind of a more casual strata of, of publication, which is like sort of like trade journals. Um, you know, sometimes this is online now, medical websites. Um, it's similar, maybe a little less rigorous, but mostly we're saying, you know, there's a medical journal and you want to write something for it. Why would you? The most obvious reason would be you did some research, right? Um, this is like presenting it at a conference. This kind of goes without saying, I think. You know, if you did an RCT you got to publish it. It's, it's an obligation, and that's probably the, the reason you did it. Um, that sort of goes without saying. Other than that, a lot of what you're doing is writing kind of eh, usually educational things. We'll talk about some of the categories. Why would you do this? I think it's similar to the conference presentation thing. It's There's some sort of, I guess, prestige associated with it. Not necessarily like you're a celebrity, but it's the sort of activity we expect people to do in the world of academic medicine. Um, it's a, it's a resume builder. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it predominantly is right. That's, let's be honest. That's really why most people do this. I mean, I think that there is definitely interest in, uh, I like to teach and this is a form of teaching. I like to share knowledge. I like to, you know, whatever, um, you know, and, and I think there's a, a little bit of, Hey, I was looking for something and I couldn't find it. So maybe I'm make it myself to this, you know, I mean, that's actually how our, my textbook that I'm the, one of the editors on, that's how that came about was I found myself looking for a good book on a subject and it didn't exist. So, you know, for whatever foolish reason, I decided I should write it, I guess. So, um, so I think there's that too. Some people enjoy writing too. I, I tend to agree with, uh, Dorothy Parker was a famous writer back uh, a long time ago. And, uh, I tend to agree with one of her quotes that, that she said, I love having written. I hate writing. Um, and that's my thing, right? I, the process itself is sometimes maddening and, um, and painful, uh, but I tend to like having something at the end of the day that I can look at and go, yeah, that's really pretty good. I, I did a good job with that. So, um, right. but yeah, I think like you said, it goes back to all the reasons we talked about last time for why you do any of this stuff is a lot of it is personal goals or, you know, just sort of furthering, you know, it's a personal challenge to yourself. Um, it does yeah, build and, a resume know, and... It's so much of it, it mirrors what we talked about that maybe we don't need to recapitulate at all, but it's that same kind of, you know, nebulous reasons people do stuff at conferences. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, it sort of establishes your expertise in an area. You know, how do you know someone who knows about something? Well, you look at 
their publications and you, you see they've, they've written about it. Right, right. Um, you know, and I know there are some organizations and practices out there who do offer some sort of, you know, financial incentive for their people to be involved in things like this. It's not as common in the APP world as it is for physicians, but, uh, but it does exist. But, you know, people often ask me like, well, why would you, why would you write stuff for journals? You're not get, you don't get paid for it. It's a lot of work, you know, aside from the non-monetary stuff that we've talked about. And I would encourage folks, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. Cause I think Brandon's right. We don't need to rehash it all. But if, if you want a monetary reason for doing this sort of thing, there's a little bit of pay your dues mentality in this industry. And if you one day want to write something that people will pay you money for, it helps to build up that credibility by doing these type of things. So in the short term, yeah, it's not very financially rewarding in the long term. It's really still not very financially (laughs) rewarding, but I guess there's the potential for that. Yeah, or at least creating opportunities that right. are not making you rich, but you might things you might want to do. Sure. Yeah, that's all true. Um, certainly, it it can be educational for others and um, and for you. And I think that is very true. A, a great way to learn about something is is to to teach it. And the amount of learning you have to do to write something is substantial. And this, I think, is is a a non obvious benefit. Um, I mean, if you're doing writing a review or something, you could say, well, you didn't even add anything to the world. You didn't do research. You just kind of, you know, learned about it and then, <laughs> then wrote about it, but you had to learn so much and do so much reading to do that, that you'll never, you'll never master a subject the way you would when you had to, to write about it. Um, that'll, that's something that'll stay with you forever, um, for all the sweating and reading you had to do. So there's something there. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, so, you know, the I mentioned the textbook a minute ago. Several people that I know that I work with wrote chapters for that book. And in some cases, they just sort of volunteered. They said, you know, what do you need? What what chapter do you need? And I would have signed, uh, you know, give them some sort of, you know, more obscure topic. And uh, they'd say, great, yeah, fine. That, yeah, I'll do it. And now they're like the go-to person for that topic, right? So I know if I ever have a question on whatever, you know, obscure component of critical care, I, that's the person to talk to because she spent tons of time reading everything there is to know about this subject and putting it down. So yeah, I think you're right. It's a good way to establish yourself as an expert. Right, and like we talked about giving presentations, uh, you know, in many ways, what made them an expert was just that they were willing to to go to that effort. Right. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Why are they an expert now? It's because they they were. It you know it sort of feeds itself. But you know how how do you think experts come to be? And I think this is true. Even if you did have say original research in an area, you know you're doing trials. You say you have a lab or something. And you do some massive RCT. I mean the amount of novel information you're collecting is really very specific. You're answering you know one specific question. Hopefully. The reason that you know people probably view as something of an expert on that topic after that is not because you know that one thing. They could know that thing too if they read your paper. Uh, but in many ways, it's all the things you had to learn along the way. <laughs> you know, to write your IRBs and to do the the literature reviews before and during and after. Uh, all those things you have to learn to do the other things. That's what makes you an expert. It's it's by accident almost. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because I think a lot of people do sort of approach this with this, well, who am I to do this? I'm not an expert in this subject. But that's the point, right? You become an expert. (laughs) Yeah, that's how experts become experts. Yeah. Okay, so those are some of the reasons you might go to do this. Certainly don't expect to get paid for it. If you're super lucky, your your work might give you some time to do it, but probably not. This is probably something you're going to do thanklessly. Nevertheless, you've chosen to do it. Next question would be, what type of thing do you want to write? Um, we, we talked about you know true research. You're conducting a prospective trial or something like that. You're collecting data. Um, that's its own thing. But let's say you don't have that. You, know, you haven't been doing a study, but you still want to write something. What do you have? There's case reports. This is a time-honored practice. You saw something interesting, cool, unusual in an actual patient, and you figure you should tell people about it. 
Um, the benefits of this are that they're not that much work. Um, they're usually short. The, the main thing that you have to do is, you know, experience the thing, um, which means you have to keep your eyes peeled and, you know, reflect when you had an interesting case, not just that it happened, but, um, oh, maybe I should talk about this. The downsides are, um, they're not as easy to publish as they used to be. I think the world is kind of recognizing that in many ways they're just, you know, they're anecdotes. It's like, yeah, cool story, bro. What does that add to the world? So most journals that still publish case reports, which are not all of them, uh, usually want to see that it's not just cool, um, but it is somehow informative. You know, that by reporting this, people can learn something about managing a, a, an unusual disease. And, hey, you saw it. It's not that common. So this is actually adding to what the world knows about it or some combination of things, uh, some complication, um, some new technique you treated in a way that is not really described before. Um, so it's, it's a, your anecdote, but it should be, you know, there should be a reason why your anecdote is worth sharing. Um, and it's much the same story with a case series, which is just a, several case reports. That is starting to get into the realm of data. I mean, you could say I or our institution had... 13 of these unusual cases or techniques or whatever. And now you can start to say what your outcomes were like and things like that. Um, but ultimately, it's not data. It's just a collection of anecdotes still. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think case studies and case series too fall into two big categories. The, hey, this is a weird thing that we saw and it's a nice opportunity to take the time to teach everybody about this thing that you may or may never see again, right? And there's benefit in that, right? You see a, see a case that you've maybe only read about um, and maybe you haven't even read about it, right? So it's a good opportunity for teaching. The other one is, like you said, we did something different, right? And this is potentially either informative. We saw this a lot during COVID, right? Well, hey, we are running into this weird complication from COVID and we're trying this and it seems to be helping. So maybe other people should try it too. Uh, but it's also potentially research and hypothesis generating stuff, right? So we tried this new approach to treating X disease and had some success with it. And now we have a case study. Well, when we, we did this five times, we have a case series. And now maybe we can gen start generating some hypothesis to do some actual research to see if, did we just get lucky five times or is there something to this, right? And I think the history of medicine is full of discoveries just like this, right? Where people out of necessity did something different and said, hey, this kind of worked and maybe we should do more of this, so. Right, and that's that's the the best reason to do these, um, and it really is, there is utility there. I mean, when you set out to do a little research, you you come across something that seems really unusual. You go and, and hey, I'll do a quick search or something, and you find that there's there's no data on it. No one's done a study. There's not even good observational data. I mean, the next question you ask would be, you know, are there even case reports? Has anyone seen this before? Because if if it's the first time that let's say, you, I don't know, your patient with a aortic aneurysm has a spontaneous bacteremia with a weird bug. And you're like, could this be because of their aneurysm? Um, maybe like two people have seen that before. And then that reinforces the idea that that is what happened. Maybe nobody has. And then <laughs> you think either I'm wrong. <laughs> this is not what I thought because it's never, it's been, it's unheard of. Or uh, I should publish this because I think it's the first time. That's the the kind of good use of case reports. The stuff that's, you know, it's not that unusual, but it's kind of interesting is it kind of falls in that category we talked about with presentations, which is um, it's sort of educational. And frankly, it's it's an opportunity for people to, to publish something uh, who are starting out in their careers or just kind of figuring out the ropes. And then, and you know, there are journals and places that, that do cater to that. It's not going to be, you know, the major journals in the field, but smaller things that focus on ed education. And like we talked about, you can go to a conference and you know, describe it there, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's that's really where you're going to see a lot of benefit from your case study. Like that, those types, right, is presenting them at a conference more so than publishing them. Because a lot of conferences right. still and do like Even those. when you find these, you know, 
in quote the literature, often it's as a summary of something that was presented at a conference. It's not right. really published. It, you know, it's it's an abstract saying that someone described it orally. Yeah, and it's a good opportunity to, well, like you said, it's it's something that's not super rare, but it's not super common, and we tend to learn better from cases and stories. I mean, hence this podcast, right? And so. By doing it that way, maybe it uh, maybe it helps others to learn about it in a way that just simply doing a review paper doesn't. Right. Now, talking about reviews, this is the other big category. Um, there's kind of a, a couple categories people usually talk about, um, usually narrative reviews versus systematic reviews. Systematic review is arguably a data-driven process. This is where you're defining rigorously that you want to you know, canvas the existing literature to see what is known by medical science about something and then um, refine it down and say kind of if, I, if we collect all this together, what do we have? Um, this may involve a, a meta-analysis where you actually pool data and, and you know, re-crunch the numbers. It may just be qualitatively describing what is known. Um, but this is a, a somewhat more serious process. Uh, it's a lot of work. It, it should be done, again, relatively rigorously. Um, but it could be something you choose to do um, even when you don't have novel data. That's part of, the, part of the benefit. You don't need to do your own research. You just need to be able to search the literature. Um, but this is getting more into the category of things like an observational study where you're really working with data. Narrative reviews are, are more the fluffy type. This is saying, I think I know something about this topic, so I'm going to tell you guys about it. It is purely educational, um, and it is a, a voice of an expert, so to speak. So often it is written by a recognized expert, um, somebody who is you know, their name is known, they've practiced in this area for a long time. Often they're invited by journals from an expert. Sometimes it is purely by someone who's an expert by dint of them, like we talked about, making themselves one. So they just, they did the research, they, they read everything, um, they fi- you know, figured out what is known, and they figured that the world needed a, a new <laughs> narrative view on this topic. Maybe everything else is older, maybe uh, they think they can just do it better than anyone else has. Maybe it's something obscure that doesn't have a lot of them. And they shopped it around to some journal and convinced them to publish it. Um, this is a good type of thing to write if you're interested in education and you want to write something. But it does have those limitations in that you either need to have a good angle, find the right niche journal for it, or you know, really be able to convince people that you know something nobody else does. Yeah, and I think a lot of these start off with people who are already somewhat of an expert on something. Like, you know, let's say it's a it's something you see on a regular basis in your practice, especially if you have a sort of niche practice, right? So we run into this a lot in neurocritical care in that a lot of things that we see every day in the neuro ICU, people outside the neuro ICU see very infrequently and they're kind of weird and scary. Right, So you start off with something that you feel like you understand pretty well. And then the way to go about it is to go and dig into the literature and find out that, hey, is the way that I do this really the right way? What, did the, what does the research say about that? Right, Is this blood pressure number that I target really the right one? Is this medicine the really the right one? What do the trials out there say? And you know, one of the benefits from that is you find out you either validate your own practice or you find that your practice is not great and you change your practice. Yeah, you know, and by and large, if you decide to write a narrative review, it's probably going to be because you, you think you know something about a topic, but 100% of the time, you're going to find that there's a lot you didn't know yeah. because you will obligatorily do a, a reasonable literature review. You'll read all kinds of things that you never could have been bothered to read before, you know, talking about forcing yourself to, to take that time, um, and you'll, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. So it is educational for you as well as for others. Um. Other types of things you might publish. There's correspondence, the letter to the editor. This is where you you literally just write a letter to the journal, uh, to sort of the world at large, saying, I think I have a useful kind of remark, some sort of commentary on the world. This could be a response to something else that was published. So, hey, you know, so-and-so at all published this in the last issue. It should be relatively timely. Don't dig up something from 10 years ago and try to you know, write something about it because the journal is going to be like, 
you, you kind of missed your window here and nobody cares anymore. Um, but you say, you know, this is a uh, perspective they didn't mention. I think they did something wrong. Um, some angle that's useful. And often when you do that, they'll invite the authors to respond to it and get a little bit of a dialogue. Or you can just correspond about whatever, you know, something that you don't think is worth writing a, a bigger article about. It could be experience of some kind. Hey, I've seen such and such. Uh, yeah, you probably could have done a case report or a case series on it, but you, you couldn't be bothered. You didn't really have enough to say, but you want you thought you'd write a few paragraphs about it. Um, this is literally how some really important things come into the world. You know, a novel disease, um, a new way of doing things. You go back at stuff that we now consider you know, widespread knowledge, common practice. Sometimes it started with someone writing a letter saying, hey, you know, I've been trying this new thing or, you know, I've been seeing patients who have this weird new syndrome or whatever. It could be um, complaining about something. You think there's people have started doing wrong. You think there's been trends in practice that are important. It can really be whatever. The only thing that matters is that it you think you have something to say that people should hear about and you can you know, convince an editor that uh, they should publish it. There is not much more rigor to it than that. They're typically not peer-reviewed. Uh, it just goes to the editor, and they decide if it's worth hearing about. Um, and that's kind of it. So it can be pretty straightforward. Um, they're a little weird. Not all journals still publish them, at least, again, not uninvited ones. They're not somehow related to something else. Um uh, you know, sometimes when they publish big uh, trials and stuff, they will invite um, sort of commentaries for every single one of them. Um, and that gets more into semi-formal, uh, I don't know, editorials, I guess would be the word, but same idea. Yeah, I I don't find a lot of these, but like you said, the ones that are out there tend to be these invited ones. Um, but you know, I think that's still a, it's a good option for people if you have a, a little something to say, particularly like you said with a case study, because case studies are so hard to find a, somebody to publish. You can write up something short about your case and submit it as a letter to the editor and somehow and get it published that way. Yeah, and there can there could be blurred lines between like a case report and, and correspondence. Usually, these are shorter. Um, just a few paragraphs. Sometimes they're not even available in the literature, and that's one quirk here. If you're used to being able to find articles um, on these indexed online search engines, sometimes letters are, like, there's no abstract, typically. All right. you'll find is a title. Um, sometimes they'll be kind of publicly available, but sometimes they're, they're really hard to get. So that's one issue here. If you want to write something that the world can get to, uh, there's actually some barriers here, unless people have the paper journal. Um, okay, the last kind of category would be just other categories, journal-specific types of things. And in fact, every journal even describes the things we talked about with different names. You have to go and see what they call what. But there'll be other types of things that any particular journal might have, often, again, in that realm of educational stuff. Um, but you got to just look at each journal and, and see. And we'll talk about picking journals. But next question you would have to answer is, who do you want to write this thing with? Uh, you could write it yourself, of course. I would say that the majority of the time, you're probably going to want to have at least one co-author. Even if you are, let's say, really kind of an expert in an area, um, and you're really just going to kind of write something educational, it's usually good to have at least one other perspective. I think by and large, it lends you um, the appearance of a little bit more expertise, um, and the majority of publications, I would say, have at least two or three authors. For somebody like an APP, maybe who hasn't done a lot of writing, they're getting into it, typically you're probably going to want to find a co-author who's, who's someone kind of senior. Um, perhaps a physician, that is often helpful. Maybe somebody you know with some authority and experience. Um, it may be that you want to find somebody with a, a different perspective so they can kind of add that angle. You know, Maybe you're writing about something respiratory and it would be cool to have a pulmonologist and a respiratory therapist as a couple of co-authors, even if they don't add that much, but it at least looks multidisciplinary. So those are considerations. Certainly it would be helpful to find someone who can do some work. Um, I will say that may be a little optimistic. 
Um, the general theme for co-authors, and I'm going to cast a wide net here because we are all at times co-authors, but nobody really cares about your project as much as you do. So if you solicit someone to, to co-write something, you should probably expect you're going to do most of the work. They're going to hopefully provide some perspective, maybe a little bit of elbow grease, but probably you're going to be doing most of it. And uh, that's just kind of life. Yeah. Now it is important to, to note that for most kinds of publications, now things like correspondence and stuff set that aside, but for most bigger public types of publications, journals now have a pretty strict definition of who gets to qualify as an author. Uh, you know, back in the day, it used to be pretty common that you, uh, if you worked for somebody, then you stuck well, just we'll just say his, because uh, that's who it typically was mm -hmm. his name on the end of everything you did, right? And he got to be a co-author. Um, you know, most journals now will make you submit something that says everybody here did, you know, contribute reasonably. Some of them will actually make you say how they contributed, right? You have to specifically spell out what did what did they do, um, and this is to prevent author creep, I guess is the way to call it. You know, you get these papers where there's, you know, 15 authors on the paper, especially if it's a, yeah, especially if it's a short paper, you, you know that there was not that much work to go around. Yeah, what do they all write one yeah. word? I, I will say that th that is the trend and people are trying to do that. I think it is still pretty widespread to burden author lists with a bunch of people of perhaps questionable contributions. Yes, they all have requirements for what they contributed to be considered an author versus just acknowledging them or something. Yes, many times they want you to say what they contributed. Um, nevertheless, if you were really honest about like the percentage of, of work people put into it, usually it's probably like one person is over 90%. Oh, yeah. No, definitely the your primary author is going to do most of the work. Uh, I'm just saying you got to be careful about just tacking on names to add. Because that's the other thing is you can see people will sometimes say, well, I'm going to add this person because they're a name, right? They're a known person, my department right. chair. Uh, or they add you know. me, it's kind of expected, or it's going to piss them off if not. Mm -hmm. um, well, they're... they're uh, a trainee, they, they need it. There's like a lot of politics that can get involved here, yeah. even if you, you don't want it to be, because then like leaving people, it's like uh, the old Greek myths where you would like make your prayers to the gods and, oh, and you forgot one of them. And then, then they spend the rest of your life, like, you know, sending fire down on you. you right. You, you, you just, it's like not doing something is its own problem. Yeah. So it's like, it's a trickier issue than you wish it were. And then the other issue here is the order you put them in. Yes. So author order becomes, you know, if, if publication is part of the currency of academia, the order that the, your names fall into is actually can be quite important. Um, there are different conventions for this. This is like it should be in mismanners or something, but it uh, in different fields. But in medicine, typically, the first author is assumed to be the person who, who did most of the work. So if you're coming up with a topic, you're probably going to be the first author. And in fact, you should make sure no one tries to usurp you from that. Um, the last author, assuming there's more than one, um, is more likely to be a kind of senior person um, who was providing that voice of experience and, and perhaps name. In an actual study, they're likely to be the principal investigator. They may they may run the, the lab or the research group. They may have obtained the funding. They're sort of supervising. They're like the attending position of the project. And in fact, they may be an attending position. Um, so in a, something smaller educational, they may be that person you found who's kind of lending that voice of, of reason while you do much of the work. Everybody in between there is kind of up for grabs. Um, if you have some somebody who did more work than others, you might make them like second author. Um, after that, I mean, maybe third, but really after second and perhaps even after first, nobody really cares. Um, everyone's going to assume that the order doesn't mean much. Um, I've often just made them alphabetical uh, to kind of avoid any <laughs> arguing about it. Um, but they're, they're called, quote, middle authors, and it's like middle children. Um, no one really cares. And, you know, early in your career, being a middle author may be useful to you. It is something you can put on your resume. You know, later on, you've, you've had a number of publications. Uh, you've been the, the 
PI, the first author in a bunch. Some people don't even, they don't want any more like middle authorships. It's just more fluff in their life, but mm. it depends on the person. But I would suggest as you start out planning and scoping this project and approaching people to co-write, um, once you have a group, uh, decide what the author order is going to be ahead of time. This is one of those things to work out in advance. It should not come up at the last minute because that is a great way for people to be confused, annoyed, or disappointed. Yeah, and I would say, like you said, in medicine, I feel like 90% of the time what we've all des- what we've just described is the is the norm, uh, but it's not always. And so when you start having that authoring discussion, um, make sure that everybody's on the same page, right? So I did a, I did a paper once and the sort of my sort of mentor advisor type person, um, I listed last and we didn't have this discussion. So when it came time to submit it, uh, you know, she was listed last and she was a little upset cause she thought that she should be second because in the background she came from the second person on there was the kind of most senior person after the first author. Uh, and it was just all down. The last author would have been like the, the least significant person. Um, and so we had to have a conversation where I explained it. Oh, sorry. I, I meant that as the sort of place of honor, not the, not putting you dead last. Yeah, really uh, plan it out ahead of time. And again, you know, if you go into the world of, I don't know, engineering or physics or something, it it may be entirely different. The yeah. third author is for this person, the second to last is for this person, whatever. This is just medicine. Okay, how do you actually go about producing one of these things? Um, you know, step one, you figure out what it is you want to talk about. So let's say you're doing um, some kind of little educational, like narrative review sort of thing. Figure out what it is you want to talk about, and it should be a little more detailed than just the broad topic. It shouldn't just be, whatever we said, aortic aneurysms. It shouldn't just be aortic aneurysms, probably. Um, Maybe you think you can write the definitive update on aortic aneurysm, um, but odds are you can't. You specifically can't because you have not, you know, seen more than anyone else or have some novel take on it. Um, more likely what you can do is either, maybe you can just be, update it. Maybe no one's talked about this in like 10, 20 years and there's a lot to say that's new. Um, but maybe you have a, a, a useful perspective. Um, and again, particularly for more educational things, particularly a topic that's, that has had a lot written about it. Um, and this may involve doing some literature review. So the second step is going to be reviewing the literature, but this ties into what you want to write about because this is how you figure out what's already been written. You know, is everybody writing this article? Uh, has it been a long time? Did you come to this topic because you went to try to read about something and you can't find much, at least in the area of interest? You're like, well, there's stuff about aortic aneurysms, but not in the ICU not in this population. And I think there's interesting, important questions and perspectives for, for that population that no one's really talking about in these other things. You know, the vascular surgeons have their own stuff to say uh, and so on, but it's not what I want to know. Um, so that finding a good niche is helpful. And this sort of ties into the third step, which is to get some sense for where you might want to publish this. Yes, you can do this later, but I think it's helpful early on parallel with these other steps to start thinking about this because it may pertain to what you want to write. Um, If you write a whole thing not knowing what you want to do with it, you may discover there's no good place to publish it, but more likely you'll find that it's not quite what any of them want. Whereas if you had targeted it somewhat early on, you'd have a better chance of getting it published. And it it may even be helpful um, to ask them. And I've, I've done this a number of times for this sort of thing. Look around, see what journals are in your area of interest, and you can approach them. Write the, the, um, uh, you know, the editor-in-chief or the director, whoever's kind of in charge, or for the relevant sections. Often, if you can find a contact, it'll, they'll be like one person. But ask them, hey, Liz, I was thinking about you know, writing such and such. Would this be kind of useful or relevant for your journal? And they may say no, they may say yeah, they may say we've done a bunch of that recently, we're probably all set. Um, or they may provide some narrowing of that, say, you know, you know, what about this particular angle on it? It doesn't mean that they're going to publish your thing, they haven't even seen it, um, but it helps you plan out. And I think it 
may improve your chance of getting it published because when you do submit it, uh, it's not out of the blue. You've talked about this with them. Um, you've discussed it. It's, it's kind of on their radar. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I think that is very helpful, right? Because it's, if, if nothing else, it sort of prevents you from wasting a lot of time, right? If you, if you know up front that I have this great idea and you talk to a couple of journals and they're all like, mm, no, thanks, not interested. Well, then you go, mm, okay, well, I'm not going to waste my time writing it then. Um, and then, like you said, it is sort of, like you said, you know, they still have to read it, right? Because I can talk to you and you can have this great idea and your writing could be awful. Um, so I'm still not going to publish it, but the idea was sound. But it does sort of give you, like you said, at least it's not out of the blue, right? This is something we've talked about and you were kind of interested in. And, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. He had this idea. Yeah, it can still be rejected, but at least it won't be rejected for that reason. Right. <laughs> because the entire premise or because the, it's the wrong journal. Right. Um, now, you still expect once you write the thing to sort of have to shop it around, which is the next step. But yeah. I think this is helpful early on. Yeah, and that's um, a good point, like you said, because it's not the right journal. Because I have had that happen before where I've written something you know, and poured months in, of work into this and submitted it only to get back that – well, I don't really think that uh, this fits with our journal very well, right? So if you know up front, then you can go, okay, well, I'll look for a different journal and try and find the, a place that it might fit before I put all the months of work into it. Right. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at these journals, you're probably going to have heard of some of them, some of them you haven't. What I find helpful when you're just sort of looking at what's out there, you can find, um, you know, lists of journals in any particular specialty, and look in your primary specialty, which for the audience is probably critical care, but there's at least going to be one or two others that are relevant to it. So for this aortic aneurysm topic, vascular surgery, it overlaps with that, right? Um, perhaps things like trauma or acute care surgery, anyone else who might deal with this process, even maybe some nursing journals. Um, so look in these categories, and then you can often just order or rank these by um, – often by impact factor, which is this, this nebulous uh, category of like how heavily cited a journal is. In other words, how big of a deal they seem to be, how many people are actually reading their papers and referring to them. It's a, a very um, hot button topic in academia because it's given a lot of attention, but it gives you just a rough idea for what's considered a, a well-read major popular journal. And then you can kind of go down these lists and see, you know, how competitive of a journal can we get this into? You know, your little educational thing is probably not going to get into the, the biggest journals in the field unless you have something really important to say. Um, but you maybe don't want to go to the bottom either, right? Um, and you will get into some journals that maybe are below the level of what is worth publishing in. So you probably don't want to publish in anything that's not even indexed in the major sort of search engines, um, you know, Medline, it's the database that PubMed searches is, is probably the, the biggest in uh, medicine, but there's others as well. People will say that they're, you know, Medline indexed or not. I would say probably don't waste your time with something that's not indexed and unless it is truly just sort of for fun or for education because people are not going to be able to find it ever. It's not, it doesn't exist. It's like if it's not on Google these days. <laughs> um you probably want to avoid journals that charge you to submit. There's this whole realm now of often considered predatorial journals, and some of them will contact you. you perhaps you're already seeing spam like this these days. Somebody at this you know, reasonable-sounding journal, and usually in other countries, saying, hey, would you like to, to publish something here? And then they may or may not mention that it costs you $2,000 to do so. Um, these are not really considered legitimate opportunities. They may or may not be real journals. In fact, they'll publish your thing. Often they're not indexed. Maybe they are. Um, but everyone kind of knows that that's not a serious journal, even if the name sounds for a minute like it might be, uh, in that you're, it's basically um, vanity publication. It's like those people who write a novel, pay somebody five grand to print off 20 copies, and then nobody ever reads it but them. Um, so you probably want to avoid that. <laughs> You probably want to avoid stuff in other languages unless you speak that language and can write for that audience. Um, and then everything in between there is up for grabs. So check out what they do, kind of what their mission is, if it seems like it would be appropriate, and if they even have 
a category of article that fits what you're trying to do. And then again, you could talk to them, you can make a list. At some point, you're gonna be submitting to these people. And then it'll just be a process of trying one, seeing if they buy it, and if not, going to the next. Yeah, and now I will say, in terms of paying for things, there is an, a, a growing movement, I guess, now for open access publication, meaning uh, I don't have to subscribe to your journal or my institution doesn't have to subscribe to your journal. It's all out there for me to read for free. Um, and, and there's a lot of movement behind this, making information more accessible, particularly to um, folks who don't have the tremendous resources that you might have if you're at a big university. Um, but, you know, so there are some very reputable, even big name journals who may have some publication fees if you're going to publish open access. Um, and that basically says, hey, we're not going to charge people to read your paper. So we have to make our money somehow. And it's going to be through you paying for that. Yeah. And a few journals are all open access these days. Um, others many times give you the option. You know, we can publish this open access or not. If not, then it will be behind paywalls. But the, the key difference between an open access publication, a legitimate journal, and a, a predatorial journal is that the predatorial ones will publish anything yeah. you pay them to publish. There's no actual peer review process, and that's why they're not considered legitimate. The reason that people sort of trust something they find published in the real world is that it's it's been reviewed and considered vetted. Whereas these people, you just paid the money to publish it. Yeah, and you can usually, if you just Google the name of the journal and the word predatory, uh, if the if it's a predatory journal, you'll know right away. Right, and it's not obvious always, but there's a great chance that if if they solicited it from you, it is, unless you really are the world expert in something. <laughs> yeah, and this is something we should have mentioned in the presentations. Uh, episode as well, but the same thing is true of conferences. There are people out there who put on these predatory conferences that will solicit, you'll get this email, you know, hey, um, we're having this world congress on whatever, and it's usually in some place great that sounds like, you know, uh, you'd love to go to Barcelona and present. Um, and a lot of times, even when you look at the conference's website, you'll, you'll recognize people and big name speakers that are going to be there. Uh, but there's a number of these organizations out there that do this and it's completely fraudulent. Um, those speakers, those big name speakers have no idea that their name is up on their website and they're, they're looking for you to submit your abstract because we'd love to have you come speak in Barcelona next summer. Uh, also, by the way, it will, you know, you'll have to pay $5,000 for, the fees and attendance and stuff in which you go, Hey, that's fine. I'm going to a big conference in Barcelona. Uh, but then it turns out there is no big conference in Barcelona or it's right. a sham and you get there and none of those big name people are there. It's just a bunch of people like you who've kind of been suckered. So yeah, they cut off your arm and take your Rolex. I mean, like any scam, you, you got to just take a moment here. They're preying off what the things that you want, but really why would anyone solicit your participation or your right. article on this topic? Unless, again, you really are the expert. But if you just kind of are some dude, then it's, it seems unlikely. Yeah. Also, you'll find if you start publishing and speaking, you'll get more of these. And they will often cite something. They'll be like, oh, we saw your recent article entitled such and such. And we yeah, would, it's like love, fill in the blanks, we would love for you to, uh, to do something like that for our upcoming issue. And so if you're just starting out, it can be flattering. You think, well, I'm not this world expert, but I did just write this article and they said they liked it. Um, and so they want me to write something else. And especially if you're a junior person who's looking to kind of build that CV. Uh, and that's sort of what they prey on. So just you know, be aware of that. Anytime you get solicited stuff, uns unsolicited stuff, they're, they're coming after you. Right. Okay. So you've picked a journal, you've talked to some authors, you've decided the order of your names, um, and you've done some lit review. Do more and more lit review. You've figured out your topic. And then from here, it's pretty much writing and you've written before. Make a little bit of an outline, um, plan out what you want to say, talk about it, you know, refer to your sources and then, you know, revise, revise. 
once all of your authors think it's done, there may be a lot of emails back and forth and a lot of track changes and things, depending on how involved each author wants to be. Um, you know, usually one person is writing the majority of the manuscript, but others may have a lot of opinions about it or, or not. Um, and everyone gives it a thumbs up and then you can go to submit it. This is when you, you look at where you were thinking of submitting it. You got to check the requirements. Again, is this even something they do? But then how do they want to get it? So everyone's going to have their own formatting requirements. What kind of files do they want? How do they want it spaced and fonts and whatever? How do they want the figures or tables presented? This can be really a pain in the butt because they all want it different. Um, there's no standardization here. And the, even the process for submitting is different everywhere. They're pretty much all online now. So they all have a web portal. Um, you just got to go to their website and see. Um, maybe some small journals, you just email somebody, but usually there's a, a portal. Uh, and then you got to work your way through it. And they're all a little different. And again, they all want their files differently. You are only going to submit to one place at a time because pretty much all of them are going to ask that if you submit something, it is not under consideration somewhere else, meaning you can't submit to 10 journals at the same time because they don't want to waste their time reviewing it and then find out that, oh, I'm going to publish it elsewhere. That's kind of rough for you because you got to pick the one you want the most, give it to them, and then wait and see. And if they don't want it, you got to wait for them to say they don't want it before you submit it elsewhere. Again, with the exception we talked about last time that you can probably present something at a conference or something, but it shouldn't be, you know, published in, in print or in something indexed. Um, quality journals try to limit how long this process takes because they know it's, it's rough. Uh, and nevertheless, sometimes it's ridiculous. People will, you know, submit stuff and then not hear back for like 10 months or something. And then it's a no. <laughs> So what most places try to do is uh, the editor just glances at it and sees if is it even appropriate for this journal? Is it like gobbledygook? Is it even like a somewhat reasonable thing? Um, if not, they give you a sort of quick rejection. And often that can be within maybe a couple weeks. Um, some people publish their like average times for this stuff on their websites. And then if not, it goes to peer review. So they got to find some peer reviewers, people who know something about this topic. They often ask you to suggest some and then they maybe can think of their own. Uh, most often it's two of them, and then they need to look at it, and that can take however long. You can imagine these are people volunteering their time. They got to provide their comments, and they can either say, this sucks, reject it, or this is perfect, just print it, or more often um, they should revise some things. They'll have feedback or comments, make some minor revisions, and then it's okay to publish, um, or some big revisions, and then we'll see, you know, we'll look at it again. And then you got to work on it and then send it back to them. So this process, again, can take months, uh, however long it takes them to look at it and then you to revise and so on and so forth. And then hopefully you'll get it into a form that they like, although it's always possible after all of this, they will reject it, which would suck. And then you try the next, the next journal. And this process can continue however many times. You can be rejected infinite number of times until you run out of journals, um, or hopefully not. Or you can try to publish something in another venue or whatever. But that's basically what this process is going to look like. Hopefully it sounds as exciting as it truly is. Obviously there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of work involved. But that's what it looks like. And then you get to say you published such and such paper. Yeah, and so I would add a couple of notes on the feedback that you're going to get from your viewers. Um, first of all, don't take it personally. I think that's something that's just good advice for anybody who wants to write or speak or do anything, right? Is it's feedback that is hopefully trying to make your paper better. Um, secondly, yeah, ultimately, this person, you know, is doing this for free. Yeah, um, for free. They're not paying any of these people. Um, they're probably an expert of some kind. So this is this is for your sake, even if they don't like your paper. <laughs> Yeah. Secondly, you don't have to do everything they suggest. That was something that was sort of a shock to me when I first started doing this. And I talked to, you know, when I have senior co-authors, they would say things like, you know, well, this suggestion that they made here or whatever, I don't think that, I think that's a bad idea. So don't do it. And I oh, what do you mean? You know, I mean, you're not in class. This isn't your teacher telling you what to do. Um, the, you don't have to do everything that's suggested, but you do have to address everything. And so if you're going to write back and say, hey, thanks for your thoughtful comments, I'm not going to do this one. Uh, I think it's 
behooves you to have an explanation as to why, right? To, to politely explain why you think the way you've got it is the best way. Um, or that you're going to do this, but not that or whatever. Uh, and sometimes you just have to pick your battles, right? Sometimes there's things that you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I don't think we should do it, but it's a really minor point and it's not worth having an argument with somebody about. So fine, we'll just do it. Right. But you also, your name's going to be on this and not theirs. Yeah if you even know their name, which you probably don't. Um, so yeah, you got to go through and see. They're not all going to be hills worth dying on. Um, you want to get this kind of, get this through. And, you know, it's a process. But yeah, you don't, the, ultimately the reviewer is not the person with the final say. It's going to be the editor. Um, if a reviewer has some unreasonable comments or something, um, that is not necessarily a hard stop. Uh, although you'll have to, you know, find that the editor agrees with you basically. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things when you mentioned, <laughs> you might not know who they are. Uh, one of the things that frequently comes up, I find is someone will say things like you should have cited the work of so-and-so, uh, who's a expert in this field. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's them. I had a, yeah, I had a mentor one time who said, uh, odds are that's who that that's who the reviewer is, right? They're a little miffed that you didn't cite their, their seminal work. So sure. Throw it in there. Find a way to cite that person. If they went to the trouble of naming someone by name. Um, although I did get one, <laughs> I did get one once interestingly where a reviewer, uh, commented that they couldn't believe I didn't cite, um, the work previously done by bowling on the subject. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was a little flattered, I guess. Well, that's, that's nice, right? That they think that I'm, uh, I'm an expert enough that uh, I should be citing myself uh, because they're blinded to it too, right? They don't know who you are. Just like you don't know who they are. Reviewers get these manuscripts. They don't have a name or an institution or anything attached. And so um, they have no idea that you're you or that you're from whatever institution you're from or whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that was an interesting, uh, yeah. bit of feedback. Now the, the editors are not usually blinded. So, Correct. you know, you can get rejected at the, at the, at the called desk rejections at that level. Uh, you know, because you wrote a narrative review and you're a nobody, that is a very real thing. Completely blinded submissions are, are not very common in medicine, although some of their fields have them. Right. I have a three thirty meeting, so let okay. us just sign off. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's what we can say about publication in academic medicine. Um, as you can see, there can be a lot of work here. Um, it can be a lot of fun. It can, it will certainly be educational. I think it's worth everyone doing once. <laughs> see if it works for you. Um, see if there's a, some kind of niche that it can have in your career. And obviously, if it is, then you can do 400 more of these. And if not, you kind of leave it by the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, especially if you're in a program where you're doing this sort of thing already, you know, you go back to school to get a doctorate, for example, or maybe even when you're in doing your master's, you have to do some sort of big project, um, you know, submit it someplace for publication. Who knows? Yeah. All right, everyone. Talk to you next time.